0: and to spread the news so that Jesus could no longer openly enter a town, but was out in desolate places, and people were coming to him from every quarter. This is God's word. Thanks be to God.
1: We're always glad you're here, that there are lots of other things we can do with our time, but if we want to know God, just like if we want to know anybody else, we have to start by listening to him, and so we come to God's word because there's no other way to know him. But he's graciously given us all of this, that we can know him and know everything about him that we need to know. So let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, may the words of my lips and the meditation of all of our hearts be pleasing to you, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. In Christ's name, amen. Well, I don't know about you, but I love a good montage, whether it's a movie or a TV show. You know, when they slice together a bunch of scenes, there's usually music over top of it, very little dialogue, but you get, you know, kind of cuts between all of these uh, different scenes. I mean, there's, there are memorable montages, right? There's the baptism scene in The Godfather. I won't tell you about it if you haven't seen it. Uh, but... There's, the, there's also, or you could think of Pixar's Up, right? In the first few minutes, that montage that tells you everything you need to know about elderly Carl uh, and his loss. But I think my favorite montage is from Rocky IV. And anybody who was alive in the 80s knows Rocky IV. That's not some of you. But if you haven't seen the Rocky movies, they're known for the montages, right? I mean, the first Rocky movie, which is seriously one of the great movies of, you know, all time. Uh, has a great montage. But Rocky IV distills the whole Cold War into two guys training for a boxing match. Like, this is, the whole thing gets, gets boiled down to that. There's Rocky the American, there's Ivan Drago, the, the Russian, and, uh, and it cuts between these scenes and where Ivan is in this Russian laboratory, you've got Rocky who's out in like Siberia in some barn working out. That's all he's got. There's this little cabin and this barn to work out in. So Ivan Drago's on, you know, he's on all this equipment, he's hooked up to all these monitors, and Rocky's out there doing pull-ups on a beam. You know, he's lifting carts, he's running through the snow. But Ivan's got all of these all of these doctors and government officials kind of pushing him, driving him to be his best. Rocky's got his heart. <laughs> he's got what he wants, right? So I mean, it's a great, you can look it up on YouTube if you don't know what I'm talking about, but it is everything that's like Cold War propaganda should be, and it's, anyway, it's one of the great montages, but Mark, the Gospel of Mark, I bring that up because the Gospel of Mark is the Gospel of montages. So, you may know this, there, there are, the, well, you probably know there are four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And John, everybody agrees, was much later, and he assumed that you knew these other Gospels. But Matthew, Mark, and Luke are called the synoptics because they have, they tell a lot of the same stories. Uh, Now, there are some unique aspects of each Gospel, but generally speaking, Mark is the, well, Mark is definitely the shortest, and generally speaking, what you have in Matthew and Luke are longer passages where Jesus is teaching. And, each, and some of these stories will get filled out with a lot more detail. Mark is really succinct, and as a result, what happens is, in church history, people have largely studied a lot more of Matthew and Luke than Mark. Because if you want them all, you know, all the details, you, you'd probably find a more full story in the other gospels. But by kind of skipping over Mark, you lose something. Because what Mark does is he takes all these scenes and he strings them together. Now, he gives you some longer scenes, and next week will be one of those longer scenes. But, but you get some of the, a bunch of these that are strung together. And what Mark is doing and what you miss, if you skip over that, are the themes that he's drawing together. Because in any good montage, right, what is revealed but the character of the people involved and the most salient themes of the story And that's what Mark is doing. And in this montage this morning, we'll see, uh, in particular, how Jesus is bringing the kingdom about. And we'll see, first, the goal of the kingdom, then second, the enemies that he has to deal with, and third, the means by which that kingdom is going to come. All right, so the goal, the enemies, and the means. So let's think about this goal And the goal is is found clearly in these stories of healing. There's a story that begins with the healing of Simon's mother-in-law, and there's a story that ends with the healing of this leper. In other words, that's kind of the bookends of this montage, right? What what is Jesus here to accomplish? And uh, and there's a few things to notice. First, First Peter is married. We don't know anything else about his marriage except apparently he's got a mother-in-law, so Peter was married. I don't know but that's an interesting kind of trivia fact. But, uh, but Jesus shows up, right? And notice this. The ease with which Jesus heals her. He simply takes her hand. And she's healed. And notice the gentleness of this too. Jesus isn't screaming. He isn't crying out. He isn't going through some kind of magical incantation. He isn't wrestling with some something that's beyond his control. Instead, he sits down gently and takes her hand, and she's healed. And then with the story of the leper in verses 40 and following, you see also a little bit more of Jesus' heart, right? Because it says quite clearly in verse 41, he saw this leper and he had pity on him. I'm not going to ask for hands. We, we, We talked... We've been talking this year about going through a a reading through the Bible in a year program, and I'm not sure how many of you are keeping up with that. If you are, you're in Leviticus, and you're in the thick of it. You're in the thick of it. This is the hardest part. But you read this week, if you were in that, Leviticus 14, which is a whole chapter dealing with lepers. Now, this is a broad category. Medically today, leprosy is 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 a more specific diagnosis. And it's, a, it's actually a neurological disease. But in the Bible, that, that category is large. Anything sort of dealing with your skin that has results that are you know, visible on the outside of your body like that uh, pretty much falls into the category of leprosy. And if you read through Leviticus 14, you find that if you have leprosy, you have to be separated off from the community, cut off from people. And if you, have, if you go into town, because you probably need things from time to time, you have to cry out that you are unclean. Now there's a lot we could reflect on on whether that's humane, what's going on, whether it's controlling infectious diseases. I don't you know there's a whole, a whole trail, if we were doing a sermon on Leviticus 14, maybe we would talk about that stuff. but, uh, but Jesus knows how lonely that existence must be. And in fact, you know Jesus has Leviticus 14 on his mind because when he heals him, he tells him to follow the instructions that are, followed there, that are, that are uh, told in Leviticus 14 for presenting himself before the priest to be declared clean. So Jesus is thinking about this. He's thinking about the lonely existence of this man. And notice he touches him and he's immediately cleared. He's, he's immediately clean. He's, the leprosy has gone. If you saw him, you wouldn't know. It's immediate. And this brings up, I think, as we get into the Gospels, there are all these stories about healing. And we have all these questions probably about them. I don't know what everyone's questions are here, but the Bible has a really specific take on what the meaning of sickness is. In our technocratic age, we think of sickness as something as a problem to be solved, and we're pretty confident that we can probably solve it. With time, with more money, with more study, we can solve it. The Bible, while certainly not discouraging that kind of research, uh, and in fact there's a long history of Christians leading the way in medical research, while not discouraging that, has a slightly different take. That sickness, suffering, evil is brought into the world initially by our sin. It is the consequences of having returned away from God. In no uncertain terms, you can go back to Genesis 3 and read about Adam and Eve turning away from God. And the punishment for that, the, the result of that, the general judgment that is, that is on us is sickness and toil and death. Now, I do want to be careful. There are some caveats here. If you read through the book of Job, if you read any number of Psalms, say Psalm 73, you will find that we are warned against thinking, well, because somebody has a serious disease, that must mean there's a, they had a really serious sin. There's not that kind of one-to-one correlation. This is a general problem. In fact, Jesus uh, in... Uh, what is it? Luke 13 warns specifically against this. There was, there was a tragedy, and he asked this question to the crowd. Were those people any worse than you? For which the answer is no. And yet, still what we see is that sickness and death reigns because sin still has dominion over this world. except what happens when someone shows up who has power over that. If Jesus is undoing sickness, what must that mean about what he the power he has over sin? In fact, it's kind of illustrated by his touch of the leper. If you if you read back to Leviticus 14, or if you read through all any of the stuff in Leviticus, you, will, you cannot help but notice these categories of clean and unclean. And, of course, people are unclean when they sin, but, there, but also if you are severely affected by the re, results of the fall, such that you're sick or you're maimed, you're also considered unclean. Again, not because you've necessarily done anything wrong, but because that's a sign of the power that sin has over us. And uncleanness always works one way. If you are unclean and you touch something else, you make it unclean. Except something weird happens here. Jesus touches this leper, and instead of becoming unclean, he makes him clean. Get this? It's as if Jesus' cleanliness is contagious. It's working backwards, it's working the other way than it should that the holiness of Jesus is making this man whole. All of this is to say, this the goal to which Jesus is driving at, what he's clearly signaling in these healings is that he is undoing the power of sin and its consequences. Because you might notice this, healings are not actually all that common in the Bible. They're not all that common in the Normal run of the Christian life. I mean, even as we were reminded this morning. That doesn't mean, of course, that we can't pray for healing. It doesn't mean God doesn't sometimes provide healing. It doesn't mean sometimes He doesn't use secondary means like doctors to help bring that healing. And yet, our hope, our final hope, is that Jesus will finish the power of evil the power of sin. Our hope is in the resurrection. Our hope isn't simply that our life will get a little better right now, but that we will be made new, that we will be made, be made whole. In other words, so often we're looking for healing just so that we can have a little more time, so that we can have, have a little more comfort in what Jesus says the Bible reminds us over and over again is he is bringing the ultimate comfort. And what we should never lose sight of, no matter how those prayers are answered, is that our hope isn't the resurrection. Our hope is that finally sin and sickness and death will be broken and will be the final enemies thrown into the pit. That's the goal of the kingdom. It is nothing short than the total, complete, soul and body renovation of you and I. So that's the goal. Then the enemies. We talked about this a little bit last week. Uh, We saw one exorcism last week, but we get it again here. There's the healings. So the crowds show up. And what happens, apparently, a bunch of demon-possessed people show up too. You see this in verses 32 through 34, verse 39, is they keep coming out. What's the deal with that? And Jesus keeps silencing them, which we also saw back in verse 25 last week. And it's kind of interesting that, again, I don't think this is something that's obvious to our eyes, not something we think about it a lot. Jesus is quite clear about this, that he is coming to drive out an enemy who's taken this territory, as I say, the whole world. And again, this goes back to Genesis, doesn't it? This goes back to Genesis 3, to the enemy that snuck into the garden that should have been kicked out, but instead was listened to. That, you know, that snake should have had his head chopped off and you know, thrown out of that garden, Right? But instead, we listen to him. And so, throughout the Bible, and it's not, it's funny because it crops up here and there. Maybe it isn't something you've noticed along the way. But this is all Satan-occupied territory. This is all demonically-occupied territory. In fact, I mean, there's one place that's really obvious is at the end of 1 John. It says, we know that we are from God, but the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. And it's like, whoa, John, I don't, I don't really tend to think about my life, this world that way. But Jesus does. And when Jesus shows up, it's on. And guess what? He always wins. Jesus is driving out Driving out these demons, and they've got nothing to say about it. In fact, they want to say about it. We saw this in verse 25 last week. We'll see it again in further stories later on. They want to say things about Jesus, and he silences them. You know, Jesus tells that leper not to say anything, and, but he doesn't keep him from saying anything. And Jesus' life gets a lot more difficult. Did you notice that? Because he goes around telling this story that I imagine I probably would have done the same thing, <laughs> telling over and over and over again about this amazing healing. But Jesus silences, he has power, and he exercises that power over the demons, over the demonic forces. And while we might, I, I don't I don't know what all your questions are about this either, in in demons and exorcism and how all this works, and maybe you've seen horror movies from the 70s. I don't know. But the our mind tends to imagine the, the kind of most fantastic versions of this. And yet, what the Bible's reminding us is that often really normal. And The power of sin, the grip of sin in our lives is often pretty mundane. The reporter Hannah Arendt, when she, was, uh, when she was reporting on the Nazi trials after World War II, coined the phrase, the banality of evil. Because what she realized was that all of these folks that had been involved in exterminating millions were not some creepy supervillain. They were normal government officials that had slowly let evil take a grip. It didn't happen because they were especially evil. It was the subtlety of it that grew and grew and grew. And maybe the Bible's, you know, smarter than us, as, uh, as Elrond says in (laughs) <laughs> the Lord of the Rings, it's perilous to study too deeply the arts of the enemy. And the Bible is kind of pretty quiet about this in general, and yet we're still told to beware. Right? The Satan is like a lion prowling around, and we'd be foolish to underestimate his shrewdness or foolish to overestimate our own capacity to understand it. There's, a, there's an old Puritan guy named Thomas Brooks, He wrote a little book called Precious Remedies Against Satan's Devices, uh, which is kind of an interesting read. uh, Some of you may not love 17th century theology, but this is what he says. He says, Satan has snares for the wise and snares for the simple, snares for hypocrites, snares for the upright, snares for generous souls and snares for timorous souls, snares for the rich, snares for the poor, snares for the aged, snares for the youth and happy are those souls that are not taken and held in the snares that he's laid. And I, there are two things that we're told over and over and over again are the tactics of Satan and the demonic forces. It not, has nothing to do with pitchforks. has nothing to do with spooky voices. It has everything to do with lies and accusations. This is what Satan does. He lies about especially about the character of God. That's what he did back in Genesis 3. That's what he does over and over and over again, what Jesus says in John 8. And when he lies, he's speaking his natural language because he's the father of lies. And the person he lies about over and over and over again is God and God's character. In our little Jesus storybook Bible, when it tells the story of Genesis 3, Uh, It says, and there was a lie that was repeated in the heart of every Christian, or every every person since then, that God doesn't really love me. That is the lie of Satan, isn't it? It's a lie about the character of God. But he also accuses, and on this front, he's half right, most of the time. Because we are sinful, we do things wrong we mess up, we hurt other people. But that's not the full story. That isn't the story of you. Certainly not if you're a Christian and it is not the story that's available to you if you're not. Is Yes, you may be messed up, but God still loves you and has given his son for you. The final verdict on your life if you are in Christ is not over. And over, and we see this over and over again. This is what Satan does. He lies about the character of God, and he accuses us. Those are his tactics. Little wonder Jesus wanted to shut the demons up. <laughs> because he knew what they would do. That, that while they knew, if you remember back to verse 25 last week, they say, you're the Holy One of God, which is True. But he knew that it would get twisted. right? That's why he doesn't want the demons talking, because he doesn't want them lying about his character. He doesn't want them accusing those that meet him. And so we see, and this is a very brief point about spiritual warfare. Maybe we'll talk more about this later on in Mark. But you see then that the main two tactics of the kingdom are truth-telling and love. Truth and love. and that's, That sounds familiar, doesn't it? The truth, particularly about the character of God, and the character of God is love. And where do we find the character of God on full display? Where do we find it in action? Where do we find the character of God fully, fully engaged in this world but at the cross? When we need to be reminded, contrary to the lies of Satan, about the character of God, we have to go back to the cross, to Jesus' life given for you and me. When we're caught up in the accusations of Satan, that you are not really worth it, that you are not really lovable, that you are such a screw-up, we have to be reminded of the cross. The only way to deal with Satan's accusations is not to lean on what we do, but what Jesus accomplishes. This is how, in other words, this is the basic building blocks of any kind of spiritual warfare in the Bible. It isn't this fantastic, abnormal thing. It is the routine of going back to the gospel over and over and over again to be reminded of the length and the breadth and the height of God's love for us in Christ So the goal is this full restoration. And the enemies that Jesus is countering are only countered through him. And notice this. There is a means by which Jesus accomplishes this, and it's a little bit strange. Verse 35, we're told, after he's been healing people, as the crowds are starting to show up, that he has to go off. Into the wilderness to pray by himself. People are looking for him. <laughs> when he comes back, people are looking for him. Jesus, where have you been? There's all these people who want to talk to you, which the disciples must be excited about, right? I mean, they're back in this rabbi, and man, it's great when the crowds are showing up, right? Because there's no, right? I mean, evangelical churches wouldn't get caught up in that kind of thing, I'm sure. But the, uh, but, They're excited about the crowds coming, and that's understandable. But Jesus needs to get away for the crowd to pray. And notice this, after after the healing of the leper and that guy's going around telling everybody about it, the fame seems to, like, really build, such that Jesus can't even go into any towns anymore. You want to know why Jesus is preaching a sermon on a mount? or a sermon on hillsides, or by the sea, it's because he can't be in the city. He can't be in any of the towns, because he gets swamped. Want to know why people end up way out in the countryside where there's no provisions left? It's because that's the only place Jesus could be. Jesus is driven out by his fame, and that's kind of the weird counterintuitive thing. Everybody wants to be famous. Everybody wants to be well-known. But guess what? If everybody knows your face, you can't go anywhere. So, Jesus takes up, in other words, the, a lonely path. And that means a few different things. Some of that loneliness is what he is driven to, and some of it is what he seeks. And I say that Jesus goes off alone, but of course, he's not going off alone to be alone, he's going off to meet the Father in prayer. We have a lot of difficulty being alone. A few years ago, there was a a study that uh, the UC San Francisco uh, ran where they asked people to put away their electronics and basically sit in an empty room by themselves for 15 minutes, and uh, and if they couldn't take it anymore, they could get an electrical shock. 25% of women took the electrical shock, couldn't last 15 minutes alone with their thoughts, 67% of men did. Oh. Unbelievable, right? We can't last 15 minutes alone with our thoughts. But listen, Jesus is seeking out this loneliness, not so that he can be that he can gain more self-understanding. Not so that he can, you know, be more mindful, however helpful any of those things might be. He goes to gain perspective, and the place that perspective is gained is in prayer. And look, Jesus is sinless, right? But he still needs to find perspective from being with the Father. How much more do we need that kind of perspective? And yet, for, you know, I think for most Christians, we struggle with this. And I'm not, again, I'm not trying to guilt you. I'm trying to say, like, let's be honest about what's going on in our lives, right? Is we'd be happy to fill the schedule, you know, of course, with work and all those things. But we'd be happy to do Bible studies and have different groups that we meet with. But to actually be alone with the Lord in prayer is a trial, It feels that way, often enough. And yet, if Jesus needs it, right, the servant is not above the master. If you want perspective, in other words, you have to be in prayer. You have to go to the Lord and quiet all the other noises. I mean, sometimes it really does mean like putting the phone in another room, right? It means, you know, doing getting away from your, any screens, right? It means, it does mean sometimes time away from people who want your attention. But if you need perspective, and we all do, that is the only way. Now, that isn't to say we don't gain perspective in community. It isn't to, to criticize any of that. But some amount of our time has to be gaining perspective by going to the Lord ourselves in prayer, wrestling with our own desires with him. And that is a struggle, and there's a reason why we call it wrestling in prayer, (laughs) because it's difficult. But it's as we're asking him, sometimes even crying out, like, why aren't you doing this? That we learn what our lives are really about. It's as we take on God's priorities and going to Him in prayer, that's why the Lord's prayer is so important. Give us a sense of priorities, right? It's when we go and we try to actually prioritize what God wants that we gain perspective on what's going on in our lives. But here's the trick. And the thing that Jesus gains, most of all, is perspective on what His calling is. We all need perspective. But what Jesus learns there, what Jesus learns in prayer with the Father, is that there is no other way but the cross. I'm not saying Jesus didn't know that that was his calling. But every time we hear Jesus pray, because we don't actually get his words all that often, but whenever we do, it is always about that end. You can think about his long prayer in John 17. Where he prays for the church, but he prays first about what he is going to accomplish in going to the cross. His prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane, where he's struggling with what he knows is the path forward through the cross. That moment where loneliness means something completely different. That moment where Jesus will be literally all alone on the cross. Crying out to the Father, why have you forsaken me? The lonely path is what we're all called, but Jesus takes the loneliest path. There is a loneliness, and that is a weird way to put it, I know, in the Christian life, but you cannot substitute others for going yourself. And yet, Jesus goes down the path that none of us could go down. The darkest path, the loneliest valley of the shadow of death, the darkest ravine to bring us out, to teach us in, that, in the relative darkness of our own lives how to find him, how to find the Lord. Jesus goes down that path so that you don't have to go down the darkest ravine, <laughs> Now, whatever the ravines are in your own life, they're not ultimately judgment and destruction. Instead, that path of loneliness that you walk leads towards life because of what he has accomplished. That path of loneliness will teach you to confront the lies and the accusations of Satan because Jesus has given the final word on those lies and those accusations you see the lonely path that Jesus walks while not the exact same path we walk in the darkest path of all is in some sense also the direction we ought to go it shows us what it means to walk that, that way and we, we struggle with this don't we The uniqueness of Jesus, and yet Jesus is also the pattern for the Christian life. And it's so important to keep those things clear, right? The final word about sin and death and judgment is given in Jesus. And yet he shows us what it means to go through this sin-sick world. To do it in love for God. Knowing where the the real goal is, communion with him. And if you think about all those things we're supposed to learn, the fruit of the Spirit, all those other lists that Paul gives, that Peter gives, about the kind of character we're supposed to grow, those are descriptions of Jesus, aren't they? They didn't make this stuff up off the top of their head, thinking, oh, what would be a really good person to be? They're describing Jesus. They're describing his character, And haven't we already seen it this morning? Love? We've seen kindness, gentleness, goodness, self-control. We're already starting to see the shape of what the Christian life ought to be. So hold these two things in mind. Jesus has taken the loneliest path for you. The path you could not survive. And in fact, Jesus was destroyed by it and raised up for you so that the lonely path of your life would be clear. You are not ultimately alone in that path. It will often seem that way. You will struggle against it. But Jesus is on your side. Jesus has done what you could not accomplish And He is our final hope. He leads the way. Let's follow Him. Father, we ask that You would teach us the way through the darkness, through the lonely moments of our own lives. Teach us to seek out the right kind of aloneness, to be with You. In knowing You, we pray that we would learn to confront the lies and the accusations of Satan. And Father, we look forward to all that you have for us, not only in this life, but in the life of the resurrection to come. So we praise you in Christ's name. Amen.